Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr. Lior Zmigrod is a political psychologist and neuroscientist whose research investigates the cognitive and emotional characteristics that make individuals susceptible to ideological extremism. Her research has been recognized through numerous awards, including Forbes Under 30 Women in Science, the Women of the Future Science Award, the Glushko Prize in Cognitive Science, amongst others. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, The Guardian, The New Scientist and The Financial Times, and she is frequently advising policymakers on developing evidence-based counter-extremism policies. Well, Lior, you're very, very welcome um, to the Tooled Up Education podcast. I've just read out your extremely impressive biography. What an amazing area to work in. How did you sort of stumble across this great interest? I think when I began, it seemed like radicalization was quite a niche issue, actually. (laughs) So um, when I started looking into kind of the psychology of ideological extremism, I was told, well, no one is extreme. How are you going to how are you going to find out? And then all sorts of political events happened. And then suddenly everybody became interested in a potential participant because we've all been awash in all these kinds of extreme and dogmatic ideologies. So it began kind of with that that general interest. And when I was starting in 2015, it was when in the UK, especially, we were seeing a lot of young people going to fight for ISIS. And kind of, I was curious about why, why those particular individuals were most vulnerable within their communities. So that kind of sparked my curiosity. And of course, this is a a news story every day in this country. And we're still talking about, you know, whether we should have People are very interested in the psychology of people who might go overseas to partake in any sort of conflict as well. But equally, as you've said and probably hinted at, the Internet provides access to all sorts of extreme ideologies whenever young people like or adults like to engage in that. So let's just take it apart a little bit. Let's talk about the terms ideological thinking and radicalization to just sort of help us understand what we're actually talking about there. Yeah, so when we're thinking about ideological thinking, what we're talking about is really this multi-part phenomenon. And it has two key components that I think are, are of interest for us to think about. The first is about how dogmatic a person is. So when you're ideological, you become very dogmatic. You kind of embrace some ideological narrative or doctrine really passionately. And that doctrine gives you a sense of how to think, how to act, what not to think, what not to say. So it really regulates our behaviors and our thoughts. And then the other component is because every kind of ideology has adherence and non-adherence, basically an in-group and an out-group, 
then there's always going to be a kind of social aspect, a relational component. And so what we see is that people who are highly ideological are not only dogmatic about their beliefs about what should be done, but they're also often intolerant of anyone who doesn't think the same. They're antagonistic to those on the outside, and they really strongly favor anybody who does belong to their group. So it has these two components. So thinking ideologically is being both dogmatic and intolerant of others. And just to sort of separate it out in parents' minds, take, for example, the great Andrew Tate debate. You know, it's raging in homes all over the country. And I think people are very interested in how to have conversations with young people, for example, about maybe narratives and and things that parents might find offensive. But can you differentiate that from extremism? How can parents just make sense of that there? Because we just have to be careful that, you know, we're kind of just who influences and who can actually shape behavior and even promote or incite things like violence. Completely. And there's a whole spectrum. And I think that's important for parents to realize is there's a whole spectrum of kind of ideological beliefs from moderation to extremity. And adolescents especially are prone to moving along that scale uh, very rapidly. And so sometimes we feel like there's it's only going in one direction, that people become only more and more extreme. But we have to remember that we can move in both directions along this continuum. So in the same way that adolescents might kind of see some ideology, whether that's a misogynistic ideology or a racist ideology, and for a moment become attracted to it, and we can talk about why later, they can similarly kind of get de-spiraled back into something that's more moderate. And we'll be talking, I guess, about both what propels people to become more ideologically rigid and how we can have those conversations with adolescents, young people, even also elderly people who might hold very kind of dogmatic beliefs, how we can bring everyone towards greater flexibility. That's right. And the word is flexibility, because one of the things that really stuck out to me when I was reading up on your work is that, um, let me just see if I can find it. It's about that cognitive flexibility. And you've just sort of alluded to it when it comes to conversation, because, you know, I think it was something, it was incredibly, yes, cognitive inflexibility can predict extremist attitudes. So we want to sort of I think teachers, parents listening, you know, we've all been in discussion with young people who will, you know, really go to town on a particular view or try and persuade us that something is a particular way. And I think, as you've said, dealing with the social component of that and managing that conversation so that we're not, we feel perhaps intuitively that we're going to ingrain or consolidate how they're thinking if we say the wrong thing. So that's why I think we came to your work and we're very interested in it. Yeah, yeah. And we can definitely talk about all kinds of backlash effects that we might be scared of. Uh, We even find in the psychology of misinformation that sometimes when you correct misinformation, when you tell people, well, actually, this is false, sometimes that makes that memory stronger and more ingrained. So there are all sorts of backlash effects, but we can disentangle it all to find paths forward. So it seems a bit like a chaotic mess, but we can we can pull the threads apart. Okay, so in some of your work, you note that not all individuals, so not all young people or adolescents are equally susceptible 
to taking ideologies in an extreme way. And before we sort of come on to your absolutely fascinating research about the neurocognitive factors at play, can you just give us a brief overview of the more well-known social psychological factors associated with radicalization and extremism? Of course. So there are all kinds of factors that we might be discussing that we hear often thrown about as kind of risk factors for radicalization. Kind of an intuitive one is loneliness. Ironically, that people who feel more lonely, more isolated, will seek out groups that give them a sense of belonging, a kind of community that can be a digital community. So when we think about adolescents who spend a lot of time on, on online, feeling lonely might prompt them to kind of grab onto all kinds of ideologies, whatever is available. And that's why whatever is available is important for us to think about, because if they are swarmed and surrounded by kind of misogynistic ideologies or racist ideologies, that's really dangerous because that might be something that they cling to if they're feeling lonely, isolated, alienated from their immediate community. So that's one risk factor that we know. We know that all sorts of stressors, all kinds of grievances, when people feel that there are kind of inequalities that they experience, they might find ideological solutions very tempting. They might find these narratives that explain both the past, why the past has been the way that it has, what the future might hold if we take particular actions, these kinds of ideological narratives that have this sometimes called like a tyrannical logic to them. So sometimes we think of ideologies as and extreme ideologies as these irrational forces, but actually they often have this kind of logic that grips people who believe it very, very strongly. So if you're stressed, if you're feeling disempowered in any way, that can be a source of comfort, a kind of a sense of certainty, uh, giving you uh, a sense of coherence about the mess that reality often feels like. And the final is kind of something that we've touched on, the exposure. So Peer groups and networks are often the fastest ways to kind of propagate ideologies. Um, and so people who are most susceptible are those that are seeking those identities, either because they're lonely or because those identities and ideologies are kind of thrust upon them, or those who are feeling stressed and disempowered. And ideologies have this really fascinating function that they often calm people down because they give them certainty, they give them answers to all these doubts and questions. They provide a compass. And exactly. this is the problem that there aren't counter narratives going on in different, and we're not sure about what the counter narrative should be or how to dismantle the sort of the toxic narratives. So what sort of signs, I know everybody's always interested in, particularly in young people, you've mentioned that sort of tyrannical logic but what other things might indicate that young people are at heightened risk of becoming involved in extremist ideologies? Is it the same sort of characteristics that you've just mentioned? Yeah, and we know, uh, and I'm sure that you've talked about this podcast about the plasticity of adolescent brains as well, and just how what a kind of vulnerable period it is. So we know that their brain chemistry <laughs> is being modulated and changing very, very rapidly. And so these kinds of social experiences, psychological experiences, then get coupled with their particular vulnerabilities. So every child, every adolescent is different. So some of them might have psychological traits, uh, cognitive traits or emotional traits that make them particularly susceptible. So I can give some examples that we can also see in adolescents. For instance, we can see that individuals who are more impulsive 
who are more sensation-seeking are those who also tend to grab on to ideologies. If you think about who goes to the front of the protest line, who goes and is willing to commit actions of violence or even kind of engage in violent discussions, those are often people who want to feel kind of thrills, who want to feel these sensations in any part of their lives. So if you have a very kind of impulsive adolescent that you're dealing with, that adolescent might be prone to engaging in acts of aggression if they are in the particular context that rewards that. And there are certainly lots of sort of conditions, you know, that exist that might Certainly when I worked in prisons a long time ago, I used to come across young people who were incredibly impulsive. And unfortunately, the impulsivity had been the trait that had sort of preceded the delinquency. So all adolescents can be impulsive, but there's something there in what you're saying for us to get sort of our our teeth stuck into and to think about where we can influence and what we can do in that regard. So there can be a confluence of factors, you're saying. That's right. Can I also ask about difference in terms of, you know, we've mentioned young men, but what about young women? You know, what do we know about if the correct term is sort of gender in terms of that sort of ideology? Yeah. So some finding that we see consistently and that I've seen in every sample and group that I've looked at is that men in general are more prone to engage, to thinking ideologically, to being willing to endorse violence as solutions, also willing to endorse all sorts of self-sacrifice, so more willing to harm themselves for an ideological group than women are. So that's something that's interesting and would probably you know, cohere with a lot of other research that we know about all kinds of vulnerabilities that young men and young women experience. Something that we see across both is, is kind of what we started talking about earlier is this cognitive rigidity is that individuals, both young and old, who are, regardless of their gender, who are more likely to be rigid in their everyday life. And that might take some slightly different manifestations in young men and young women, depending on the degree to which they engage with those kinds of gender-typical behaviors. But when we're thinking about what does a rigid person look like, what does a rigid adolescent, how do they behave in their everyday life, what could give us clues that they might be a little more rigid, is the degree to which they engage in very repetitive, very precise habits. So the more that they are continuously kind of, you know, persistently engaging in particular habits, those might be, you know, rigidities about regulating what you eat. It might be rigidities about how you expect others to behave towards you. And that the second that there is a transgression, that there's kind of a huge outburst. (laughs) So any kind of rigidity that we see It doesn't have to be ideological. It can be in any aspect of life. The more that a person engages in very strict habits, the more likely they are to be psychologically a bit more inflexible. And that sounds as though from a parenting perspective or an educator perspective that the digital diets that come together with particular personality traits and particular psychological vulnerabilities. That's where the the crossroads is that we have to pay attention to, if that makes sense. Completely. And if we think about what social media platforms do, is they amplify very emotionally provocative content, right? So if you are an impulsive adolescent and you are getting only the most emotionally extreme content, it seems like those social media platforms 
are kind of provoking exactly the psychological vulnerabilities that you know the person possesses. So it's this vicious cycle where you, if you're vulnerable psychologically in all these ways, emotionally and cognitively, and then you come onto platforms that only feed you that kind of information, it creates a vicious cycle. Yeah, so I'm sure that's something you despair of when you're reading and knowing about this stuff. In terms of the sort of the, the cognitive flexibility, well, first of all, I want to ask you about You've done so much work in this area, but what are the sort of flagship studies that you've done on this that we'd want to sort of highlight today? Yeah, so what we've looked at, and maybe it'll be good to kind of mention, what is cognitive flexibility or cognitive rigidity? So, and how do we measure it in in kind of from a scientific perspective? So when we're thinking about cognitive rigidity, it's this difficulty to think in nuanced terms. So it's kind of resorting quickly to more black and white kinds of thinking. And a person who's more cognitively rigid struggles to adapt to new situations. They struggle to kind of shift between modes of thinking. And when we test that in like thousands of participants, we give them these psychological tasks, these problem-solving puzzles that measure how adaptable they are when their environments change or whether they are very strict and rigid and kind of persevere with the old rules they learn and can't adapt to new rules or to new situations. So when we measure it, we're actually measuring it kind of, these are usually visual games, kind of like Tetris kinds of games or they're linguistic puzzles that have nothing to do with people's political attitudes or preferences. But what we see is that the more cognitively rigid you are, psychologically kind of with any kind of stimulus whether it's kind of a a language game or whether it's a visual game and you're kind of learning new new kind of game patterns we see that even in those contexts that predicts how willing you will be to engage in ideologically motivated violence so the more cognitively rigid you are generally in your perception and your cognition the more specifically we see you are ideologically rigid And we see that also kind of, we see this inverted U-shaped curve where the more cognitively rigid you are, the more likely you are to go towards any extreme, whether that's to the right or to the left. So that's a really interesting kind of symmetry that we see because sometimes we think that rigidities will only manifest with kind of right-wing ideologies. But in fact, we see that when we measure it carefully, we can see that people who really are passionately kind of devoted to left-wing parties as well can also manifest that rigidity. And the moderates, those who don't strongly adhere to any ideological party or group, tend to be the most cognitively flexible. Hmm. So that's very interesting. And, you know, it sounds like educators are extremely well placed to because they do this anyway in their in their in their job every day to really think about the promotion of cognitive flexibility. And also, I know that a lot of um, schools are actively using sort of metacognitive teaching techniques and, and just sort of peeling back the layers in terms of how learning happens But also, I was interested to see that metacognitive skills might also be useful in reducing dogmatism and polarized beliefs. So can you talk a little bit about that relationship? Of course. And so what we see, so metacognitive beliefs for those who don't know are kind of our, the level of confidence we have, how much we know what we don't know. (laughs) So if we have good metacognition, we're able to say, oh, yes, I know this for sure when we do and able to say, actually, I have doubt about 
a certain topic when you don't know much. So it's about kind of appropriately measuring where you know and what you don't know. And what we see is that the better you are at knowing yourself, at knowing what you know, the more that you are likely to be kind of receptive to evidence, receptive to alternative perspectives, kind of aware that, you know, you should be kind of intellectually overconfident. And so that's really important to instill in children and adolescents and adults as well, for them to be able to accurately assess what they know, what they don't know, when they need to seek out information and where to seek that out. Terminology, which I think you've actually studied, that came to mind there is sort of that intellectual humility. Precisely. That what we're kind of aiming for is cognitive flexibility, but also humility and able to decipher what we know, don't know, owning up to things that we don't understand and being comfortable in the discomfort of not knowing. Exactly. And in one of my studies, we looked at this intellectual humility, the capacity to be receptive to alternative perspectives. And we see that cognitive flexibility predicts your intellectual humility very well. We also kind of address this question because sometimes I get asked, well, is it not just intelligence? Is it not just that the more cognitively able you are, the more intelligent you are, the more that you will be intellectually humble? And intelligence is important, but actually it's not the full picture. So you need both kind of cognitive flexibility and capacity to process information in order to get at intellectual humility. And actually either route is enough. So that's this fascinating result we found from this research that even if intelligence or cognitive ability is not very high, but you have cultivated cognitive flexibility, kind of adaptability, then that will translate into intellectual humility. And that's really important. And what you're describing is resilience, the characteristics yeah. of resilience, um, academic or emotional. You know, that's where we kind of aim for. And obviously, digital resilience becomes incredibly important in the age of misinformation. I mean, this is a very important topic for young people. I know that they're very interested in misinformation. So how can we sort of take what you've just described into sort of a practical sphere? And what would, you know, if you were running a school, if you were a teacher and you wanted to get started, ignite conversations about misinformation, where would you begin? Wow, that's a huge, huge question. And I know that educators are tackling this from all different perspectives. One thing, like we, we started saying, is getting also young people to reflect on where they might encounter misinformation, because that's a key part. I mean, if we think about TikTok, which five years ago only had 100 million users and now is in the billions of users, and that's a huge channel for misinformation that young people and adolescents might not even know is a source. So that's, first of all, really key for people to know where might they encounter misinformation. They might expect to encounter it, you know, on certain kind of media. YouTube or something. YouTube, exactly. But again, do they always expect it? So we really want, you know, young people to reflect on what would misinformation look like because it doesn't always come packaged as looking like misinformation, obviously, and that's the trick. It looks and feels real. So not only do we need, obviously, as as a society to reduce the kind of availability of misinformation, but we have to help children and adolescents become, in some senses, more skeptical, 
but also make sure that they don't fall into excessive skepticism where they don't trust anything, <laughs> because that's also a problem facing us and facing our democracies now. If you don't trust anything, then you're also kind of vulnerable to not listening to mainstream information and news sources. So balancing that is a careful act. Okay, we watched an interview where you discussed the importance of creative outlets in engendering cognitive flexibility. And you said creativity is a really important antidote to ideological thinking, because it makes our minds more flexible. Well, this is super fascinating. So tell us a little bit about, you know, that particular piece of work. Yeah, so what we see is that creativity in any form that it comes, and we need to appreciate that also with, with young people, it can come in so many different forms, but creativity that takes people out of their habits, that requires constant spontaneity and originality and ingenuity, whether that comes in the form of something that's artistic, it could be something that's athletic, it could be, you know, baking, gardening, it could be anything. But as long as the way that they engage with that subject or that kind of domain is one of genuine creativity, where they're constantly trying things afresh, they're constantly trying to invent something anew, that allows our brains to become more flexible, more plastic, and therefore more resilient. And so it's important also when we're encouraging young people to be creative, it's not merely to repeat and replicate what people have done in the past. It's to really kind of get them to engage their whole brain to be creative in a genuine sense, because that builds their capacity to be resilient, to be skeptical. Yeah, so it's about diversity of experience and it's being open-minded. And to hear lots of different voices, not just one stream on social media. So you're described almost like a digital diet that is diverse. Exactly. Digital diet that's diverse, but that also where they can be critical judges. Where Because if it's just plurality, then sometimes that will include misinformation or it will include toxic voices. So we need to balance diversity with also quality and rigor of information because Diverse viewpoints are sometimes, you know, we need to think exactly what that diversity looks like. And it's very difficult for schools, for parents, for organizations to work out where we can source kind of tangible examples of misinformation. Are you conscious in your own work of particular websites that are very good at sort of weeding out misinformation or guiding citizens towards sort of content that they can have confidence in? Yeah, so there are now starting to be all sorts of resources um, and organizations that are working to be almost like independent press offices to really hold both journalists and kind of media outlets up to kind of a standard. Um, and so there are all kinds of like, like a, I think it's called the Science Media Center in the UK, which is doing essential work for making sure that what journalists put out there is reliable and reflects expertise well. And that's that's also what we want children and adolescents to be able to, you know, we want them to listen to expertise while having an understanding of what authority looks like. Because if we're constantly getting them to doubt everything that they're saying and listening to sources like TikTok, which is, it's like a flat structure. Everyone can become a content creator. Everybody can become an influencer. But we want them to appreciate authority without it becoming authoritarian. Yeah, understood. And you've done, I think, a lot of work with the government, with police, is that correct? Making sure, you know, we all know about Prevent, the Prevent program in Britain. And sometimes you'll hear clips on the news 
about, you know, a 10 year old being referred to prevent, which can seem terribly alarming to parents or quite odd that what is happening in that program that would sort of de, you know, convert, if you like, that child's, like, what are we trying to do with a child at that age in terms of developing cognitive flexibility? Yeah, it's incredibly challenging. What do you do when you suddenly have a child or an early teen who who is espousing really violent views, views that we find abhorrent, and they have somehow become rigid on those. Now, it's also important to think about how usually the people who get channeled into these kinds of programs are often ones that experience other kinds of mental health difficulties. So if you've gotten to the point of being referred to one of these services, there are going to be other factors. So it's very rarely like from a child that you'd never expect. So for instance, we know, like we talked about rigidity, that is some like a, it can be a risk factor for other kinds of, you know, more clinical forms of rigidity. So these services are working at the combination of police and mental health, and it's very, very complicated space. Yeah. So it's very challenging to know what to do and how to take a child out of those ideologies, which, you know, sometimes we think, do children even have ideologies? You know, what does it mean for them to have the kind of conviction? And at what point are they a risk to themselves or others? And more importantly, are they being manipulated by someone else? And that's, I think, many parents' fear that somehow, you know, a child could be groomed kind of ideologically uh, to commit acts that are against against the child's own interests. Which does happen, doesn't it? It does happen. It does happen. And it's scary. So it's 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 a complicated it's a complicated space. I, I know that the government is constantly seeking out kind of evidence based to improve the evidence base. And that's um, I'm trying to do a lot of work for that to make sure that when we're looking at the people who are most at risk, we're not just using the demographic factors that we most commonly use, but that we really incorporate the psychology of the person's understanding of the context in order to make sure that our assessments are rooted in evidence and that then we can know what what to undo or what. We're kind of learning more about that sort of psychological profile. We've noticed amongst all of your other amazing work that you founded the Cambridge Cognitive Science Research Assistantship Scheme which everyone's very interested in. Can you tell us a little bit about that and the sorts of research projects that young people were involved in and if it's still viable, is it up running? (laughs) Yeah, that was a really great project that kind of started in lockdown where I needed some help with big, big data sets I was working on. Uh, And usually I'd get undergraduates to get involved as part of their kind of degree. But then I thought, well, actually the work that I'm doing, like that I need help with, any high schooler, any kind of sixth former could probably help out in, and it could kind of give them a flavor of whether they enjoy looking at this kind of data, whether they enjoy thinking about psychology. And so created this scheme, which was kind of a win-win situation where I actually got like 50 young people to help out with real data, real research, which we often wouldn't entrust such young people. But I got several of them to work on the same data to make sure that on the data side, it was all rigorous. Uh, but then I'd also offer them these kinds of data analysis workshops and mentorship schemes to kind of help them chart their way into psychology or neuroscience or other fields. Because sometimes they came and they said, you know, I love this, but I think I'm actually going to go into law <laughs> or like <laughs> medicine. And that's awesome. And it's been really great to follow them up. So they worked on all kinds of projects, some on creativity and kind of the cognitive flexibility that I've been telling you about, thinking about quantitative data and how how can we extract 
quantitative information from qualitative data, from data that's where people are writing long responses. How can we code that up? So that was really fun and enriching, and it's been great to see kind of where it's gone. Hopefully it'll come kind of, it's now been on a slight pause because it needs quite a, a lot of resources, but hopefully we'll get another set of projects up and running. So there's a website for it and anybody who's curious can kind of send me a message there sharing the oh, Sounds brilliant. And we know that you're very interested in promoting diversity in science. You've written about the need for diversity, particularly in the peer reviewing process. That always gets a bad press on Twitter. For scientific papers, in fact, you comment, science is like a party. It's only as good as who's invited. We all know that we need more women in science generally and that plurality and diversity in all forms is something we should actively promote. And I know it's not your area of sort of research expertise, but what about schools who are striving to sort of cultivate diversity in science? Yeah, I think that's, I'm obviously very passionate about it because I think that we need to promote young women and minoritized groups at all levels. And that's also why I did that research kind of scheme, because I wanted to get young people involved even before they choose their degrees. I think the first thing is also to make it clear for young people considering going into science or choosing like science A-levels or GCSEs, that the science you do in school is kind of like a preparatory ground for a lot of kinds of really fascinating science. The science I do now has nothing to do like with the physics or chemistry or classic biology that I learned at school. And so if I didn't know that there was more out there, I may not have gone into science either. But if you kind of show students that there's so much more out there, that's the real world science and real world research are so much broader that actually from science, you can later jump on to many other things, into policy, into social work, into all kinds of industry jobs as well, that science and quantitative skills will always be really, really good for you, regardless of what trajectories you later take. So it's a really worthwhile investment for anybody. Oh my goodness, we're going to be sharing this podcast with all these students, like my own son, choosing their A-level subjects at the minute. And tell us lastly, what are you doing on a day-to-day basis at the minute? What exciting projects have you got in the pipeline? So the project that I'm most excited about is that I'm writing a book now for a public audience. So it should be coming out in the next year or so, uh, where I kind of talk about the science behind the ideological brain and try to explain it in a way that's accessible to anybody. So you don't need a science background to read it. But if you do have a science background, it will also be really exciting in basically sharing this whole new field of political neuroscience of how our ideologies creep into our brains and what can our brains do to resist and to feel more free and authentic. Wow. And when is that coming out? So that's going to come out in about a year. Wow. We can't wait to read it. I'm going to be the first person to buy it. (laughs) And We know now educators, parents, everyone is really interested in this area. So it's a beautiful time to publish it. Well, listen, I think you're amazing. Thank you so much for all of the great work that you do in such a critical area. And we we really, really hope to have you back to talk about your, your book. Perfect. Can't wait. Thank you so much. Thank you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.